Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 2nd of January 2023 and a happy new year to you all. This is episode 282. On today's podcast, I talk to doctoral candidate Harry Sanderson about his research into training and discipline and the interrelationship between the two in the British Expeditionary Force on the Western Front during the First World War. At the time of recording, Harry was a doctoral student just about to submit his PhD thesis. And by the time you listen to this, Harry will probably be Dr. Sanderson. The future Dr. Sanderson spoke to me from his home in Yorkshire. Harry, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in training, discipline and the Great War? So I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Leeds and hopefully I'll submit it by the time this podcast comes out. Um, At the time of recording, I'm about three weeks away. Um, How I got into training, um, I can't really remember. Uh, I started off being interested in my MA looking at Ivor Maxi and the 18th Division. And obviously training is a big part of what he does as a general and it just kind of transferred. It gradually became less about Maxi and more about training. And um, Dr. Timothy Bowman also helped push me down this road for a, as a PhD suggestion. And I ran with it and ended up realizing there was a lot to say and now wish I'd probably pick something slightly less complex um, to do my PhD on. Uh, the link then between discipline and training is discipline is a key component of what makes um, an effective soldier in the First World War. Um, and it's something training has to build. And whilst there's been a lot said about discipline, there's been very little said about training's role in actually building it and maintaining it within soldiers. And I hope over the following podcast, I convince you that training was probably the key factor in explaining significant aspects of soldiers' attitudes towards discipline during the war. So when we come to talk about training and discipline, how would you define them? Right. So starting with training, I think there's basically two ways you can define it. So if we take the ultimate purpose of training in the British Army in the Great War, it is what, as stated in Infantry Training 1914, um, to make the soldier a better man than his adversary on the field of battle. So one way of defining training is basically anything designed by the army to make a soldier more effective is training if you're taking a very holistic view. So that can include stuff like how they're accommodated, um, what uniform they're wearing, and all these what would be called background factors, I suppose. The second way of defining it is pretty much whatever's included in training manuals, such as IT 1914, which basically starts with close order drill and goes all the way through to realistic war exercises. Um, And the second way would be basically starting there and following it through to the end. In my thesis, I've kind of gone with the first route, the holistic one, because I definitely think uniform accommodation, even the localization of recruitment, the reasons why men are enlisting are all very important aspects in influencing training's ability to create a better man. And particularly in this case, their discipline. So what would you define as discipline? Yes, the second part. Well, discipline is actually really difficult to define. Um, The British Army in the First World War knew discipline was key and everyone reiterates it. Um, In 1913, uh, the Royal United Service Institute or RUSI journal has a prize winning essay competition on developing moral qualities in soldiers. And all the essays basically focus on discipline. And all the essays have completely different definitions because there isn't a universally accepted one. Um, Now, historians have also struggled to define it, and there's lots of various definitions in use. Some, such as David French, basically take the easy option and just 
don't define it at all and just assume you'll understand what discipline means. Timothy Bowman claims discipline is an external force that makes a soldier carry out his duty, whereas others like Gerard Aram um, focus on discipline being the notion soldiers were expected to follow orders and that it's um, reinforced by the threat of punishment. However, if you look at how discipline's used um, by the British Army, I don't think any of these um, definitions really capture its scope. What I look, I use is, based, is the modern Oxford Dictionary's definition of discipline, as I quote, the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behaviour, end quote. Now, these rules and codes aren't just the formal army laws, but they're also unwritten precedents, particularly in regiments. Donald Hankey, who served um, during the war, wrote in his memoir that discipline was like an ancient religion, complete with mysteries, hierarchies, dogmas, and rituals that soldiers had to follow. So a disciplined soldier was one who accepted the army's authority over him and followed the formal and informal rules governing army life. Discipline was not an external force, as Bowman puts it, as soldiers had to submit to it willingly. And whilst the army did use punishments to enforce it, it also relied on soldiers willingly choosing to obey discipline out of a sense of respect for the army. So you've, you've touched on this already, but how do historians view the relationship between training and discipline? They don't would probably be the short summary of that. Uh, there are a lot of really, really good works on discipline. So Bowman on the Irish regiments I've mentioned, Helen McCartney on um, the Liverpool regiments, Ian Beckett's done lots on discipline, particularly in the territorials. Um, Edward Spears looks at the regulars. And there's a general, two kind of orthodoxies have emerged from this literature. The first is that different categories of soldiers in the First World War had very different outlooks on discipline, all levels of discipline. So the pre-war regulars, the professional soldiers, tend to be viewed as having very good discipline. The territorial force and Kitchener's army tend to be viewed as having very poor discipline. What we understand about conscripts of post or post-1916, because not all of them technically were conscripts, is not very much, though. Lots more needs to be done on conscripts. There's a, I've got a friend, Joshua Bilton, who's currently doing a PhD on this. Um, but the only work we have is Ilana Bettel's that looks at it in depth. Um, I should mention Tim Lynch has recently done an excellent MA thesis on this that he was very kind enough to let me read. Um, and I hope he takes it further. But conscripts, we don't really know a lot about. Um, but the orthodoxy to explain the difference between territorials, kitcheners and regulars tends to come down to men's social backgrounds. Regulars were tended to be from the underclass, so the absolute bottom rung of society, and they only enlisted out of utter desperation. So John Bourne posits that this basically meant that they were completely reliant on the army, so had to obey everything the army told them to do because um, they didn't have a choice. In contrast, territorials and Kitchener's armies, for a variety of reasons, tended to be uh, far more from the working class and the middle class. And in those cases, they tended to be, they often belonged to trade unions. They often had attitudes to their managers um, where they would, let me try and work out the phrasing here, not confrontational, but if they thought something was wrong with working conditions, they'd raise it. And which isn't really what the army wants its soldiers to do. Um, there's a great description about um, jo uh, Beef, who wrote the first 100,000, describing them as trade unionists who write to their MPs and quibble about the slightest thing, and suddenly they're expected to obey everything the army tells them to, and they don't want to. However, when I've looked at conscripts, now conscripts came from the same background as Kitchener's army and the territorial force, it's very representative, lots of working and middle class. They don't have the same attitude problems toward discipline as territorials and kitcheners, which led me to think that maybe um, social background doesn't really explain it. Now, another factor possibly is attitudes towards service. Because the Kitchener's army were volunteers, you do get some quotes where they're like, I am only here to fight Germans. I don't care about discipline. Just let me do that and I'll get on with it. And the conscripts, by the nature of being conscripted, are kind of more a cog in the machine. But I'm not convinced by it. 
rather the key area to me, um, or certainly one key area that has been missing from existing examinations of discipline is training. Um, Now, training is aiming to build an instinctive willing obedience to the army's, army's authority within soldiers, chiefly through close order drill, which the British Army specified was, and I quote, of first importance in producing discipline. Now, as we'll come on to, um, I'm sure, there are massive differences between how this training is performed between regular soldiers, Kitchener's Army, Territorial Force, and conscripts. And I think these really do explain, or best explain, the different attitudes in discipline. So how do you view the relationship between discipline and training, and how does that change over the course of the war? So as I said, discipline, um, mainly through close order drill, which is probably the epitome of a soldier. Like if you think of a soldier, you think of red coats, bare skins, saluting crisply, marching perfectly in step. And that is what is taught in close order drill. And this builds training. Um, there's various good explanations for it, but basically it makes soldiers or men or recruits subordinate themselves to the command of a superior. They're no longer thinking as an individual. They are simply reacting to the commands of the person in charge of them, which innately builds a respect for order. Um, Now, uh, taking a holistic view of discipline, there are other aspects to this as well, which soldiers use. So from the outset of men's military service, discipline is inculcated by making them maintain their quarters in a prescribed manner. Like they have to fold bed sheets exactly as intended. They have to polish everything like their buttons. Now, Major Lawson, I previously mentioned, explained that the rigorous standards regarding these like supposedly minor tasks um, were key to, and I quote, creating in the soldier an idea of duty, end quote. And that another quote, many apparently insignificant details were necessary to the making of the man as a soldier chiefly through discipline. So training undoubtedly to me, or as I'll show, plays a major role in building this discipline by forcing men to accept the army's authority over them by subordinating their will to a higher power. Um, And to go into, let's now, I'll explore in some detail some of these examples, Um, particularly with close order drill, because there is a lot of debate around whether it's actually necessary or whether it's effective, because obviously close order drill doesn't have much purpose on the modern battlefield from 1914. I mean, the Germans certainly still marched forward into battle in close order, shoulder to shoulder, right? And there's examples of that through to 1918. And then the French do it in 1914. But it generally results in men getting manned down by rifles and machine guns for exceptionally heavy casualties. So there's definitely a view that close order drill was a hangover from the Napoleonic era. And it certainly was if you're thinking purely in terms of military skill and battlefield tactics. But if you look at discipline, it certainly had an important role. And it is this and it is role in building discipline that is why it continues in the army. Um, So to start with. And I'm going to kind of repeat myself now because I kind of got ahead of myself. But close order drill built discipline because it made men surrender their independence and place themselves under the full control of a superior. They no longer decide how they should move, how they should stand or how they should dress. The army does. Well, unless commanding officer or sergeant. Now, gradually, this innately conditions them to conform to and respect discipline and to instinctively obey the orders of a superior without hesitation. Now, to give an example, in 1921, Major M.C. Festing argued that standing to attention involves sufficient self-control to remain perfectly still in a certain position, to be fully alert and to be entirely silent. The position of attention requires a subordination of the will of the individual to that of his superior. Now, the follow-on from that is whether this is actually valuable on the battlefield. Uh, in the 1930s, an anonymous field officer writes in the Rusi Journal that the laurels of victory often go to undrilled but intelligent and well-commanded troops, including the Dominion forces in the First World War. Now, this argument is just fundamentally flawed. For one, the Dominion forces were not undrilled, as the f- uh, field officer argues. They did perform lots of close order drill. They just weren't as drilled as a regular pre-war, which is a different argument. 
And there's also the false assumption that obedience and independent initiative cannot coexist together. This is not the case. Now, so obedience and discipline can coexist. So the obedience and discipline taught by close order drill ensures that when a superior ordered his men to do something, they did it. It's when orders are not provided or offered leeway for independent thought, initiative could still flourish and was um, built by other training methods, such as uh, exercises, maneuvers, and rehearsal attacks, which you'll have to read the rest of my PhD to see me uh, cover. Now, I, IT 1914, the Army's main training program at the start of the war, made this clear. In defining soldierly spirit, it specifies that soldiers were to obey orders or to act in absence of orders for the advantage of his regiment. So it has that clear delineation there. So when I'm talking about close order drill and discipline, I'm only focusing on the first element, um, the response to orders. Now, another criticism of close order drill, I'm just kind of listing them here, is that teaching discipline through this manner was unnecessary. And going back to a field officer, he cited how railway workers, that was the example he gives, showed true discipline because they go on and off duty at their scheduled times and did their work with little direct supervision as it was their duty. He then contrasts this with soldiers who say, if, not, if they're not under direct supervision, will do everything they can to shirk their duty or avoid work or labor. Um, now discipline, he says, this could be developed by other means. But again, this ignores one key method of enforcing discipline available to civilian employees, but not the army. Civilian employees can sack workers if they don't do their job. The army is always desperate for more men. Um, not a lot of men necessarily want to be in the army. If it starts sacking them for not doing their job, it's not going to be able to fight the First World War. It has to build discipline by um, another manner, and close order drill and training is the main way it does this. Um, uh, this was understood by plenty. plenty. Uh, one officer, Wardle, ironically, uh, well, somewhat romantically likened uh, close order drill to a sacrament of soldiering, demonstrating the right relationship between the leader and the led existed. Now, Stephen Graham, who served in the Guards Regiment in 1917 and 1918, put it more pithily when he identified that close order drill was not so much to drill correctly and smartly, but to ensure soldiers go unflinchingly to death or murder in war. Now, despite this importance of close order drill, the effectiveness of this method has been, been overlooked. Alexander Watson touches on it in his Enduring the Great War, um, asserting that for most men, it ensured obedience ceased largely to be a conscious choice and instead became a default option. But he doesn't cite any evidence to support this and makes no differentiation between British and German soldiers or at different parts of the war or different categories. And really, the effects of close order drill were far more nuanced than this. Um, there is a difficulty, though, in that when close order drill was effective in building discipline, the army doesn't like to mention it because it just accepts that as the standard. Um, it's not notable. Um, it's usually only when close order drill doesn't build discipline that the, army's aim, that the army talks about how ineffective it is. So what happens is we get these massive spikes of complaints about poor discipline, and then discipline will kind of disappear from the record for long periods as well. And you kind of end up having to assume that's because there weren't the complaints and balancing it from um, qualitative assessments of what you find in soldiers' accounts where they're not specifically talking about it. So to outline the general picture, what I've found is that training quickly made recruits and soldiers pre-war and post-1916 rapidly conform to army discipline, um, whereas for Kitchener's army and territorial force, it didn't. Now, to explain this, I do need to go into um, some background factors quickly, most important of which was the manpower um, entering training. Now, Pre-war, the regular army is tiny relative to other European armies, and training has to process a very small number of men. Um, I don't have the figure in front of me, but roughly relative to experienced soldiers, um, there's like 10% of new recruits a year, whereas in the French, it's 30%. 
of recruits to experienced soldiers per year. So there's a lot of experienced men there, a lot of experienced instructors who know what they're doing to lead training. The raising of Kitchener's army blows this apart. By the end of 1915, 2.5 million men have volunteered and roughly 47 times um, the number of men are now enlisting per month compared to pre-war. Um, the British Army's training infrastructure can't handle this. The number of inst um, instructors is completely swamped. Um, so they're having to employ people who were retired and even they're a tiny minority. And lots of instructors are simply appointed from the ranks. They come from the OTC with absolutely minimal training. They might get a couple of weeks and then they're expected to lead a squad of 100. Um, or they're just appointed from the ranks, in which case they're being taught what they need to train the men in the night before they lead training themselves. And it leads to catastrophes. Now, by 1916, the pace of recruitment slowed. Uh, so there's fewer men going through training, which means there's more instructors uh, readily available. And as the instructors from Kitchener's Army become more and more effective, uh, experienced, they become better at teaching drill. And the Army, and I recommend Charles Fair's work in 1917, The Darkest Year, introduces officer cadet battalions, which generally prove effective at training junior officers to lead training. So there's much more. So there's both a greater quantity and quality of instructors from 1916 onwards. And this is key. Um, let me find my place again. So for this means basically that the experience of pre-war regulars and post-1906 recruits is very similar. When they enter the army, they're immediately under the tyrannical gaze of experienced NCOs who know exactly what standards and drill movements they have to enforce. At the turn of the century, Horace Wyndham recalled nothing escaped the eagle glance of his sergeant major, who was a born soldier who could handle a squad or a battalion as nobody else could handle one. Post-1916, Alfred Hale similarly describes being under the gaze of a bullying sergeant who ensured they did everything in the proper military fashion. We had to do this, we had to do that, to remember this, and the least deviation from the path of duty rendered the offender liable to be taken before the colonel. NCOs at, uh, I apologize for the pronunciation because I've only ever read it, but ETAPLES, which I, I think can be pronounced ETAPS, um, were particularly detested by every soldier who encountered them because they displayed the utmost zeal for spit and polish. Um, ETAPLES was a training base in France which recruits went out to on their way to the front. Um, furthermore, these for men from middle class, another side benefit here was these sergeants and NCOs used frequently foul language, which shocked so many of the men from middle class and upper class backgrounds that they realized they were now in the army and they better shape up and follow commands. Hayden Hornsey was uh, bullied and sworn at by NCOs until he realized there was a difference between civil life and the life of a private in training for the front. Now, the speed with which these NCOs made recruits act in the army's prescribed manner quickly inculcated discipline and obedience within them. Pre-war, JFC Luce, JF Lucy's first morning in the army was spent cleaning a section of the barrack floor with caustic so soda, which burnt our soft hands. He knew quickly that there was no idling in the army, army business, and already his romance was beginning to pale. Recruits also had to ensure their uniform and equipment were perfectly clean and worn correctly, with Frank Richards describing how their tea buckets had to be bright enough for a man to shave in, and if their cap and collar badges were not clean or worn correctly, their officer would find them guilty of a crime. Now, making enlistees perform these minor tasks laid and maintained the foundations of discipline and obedience, and close order drill then built on this. Lucy drilled and drilled and drilled, the bugle bullying is on to parade after parade. He repeated the simplest actions time and time again until he executed them perfectly and without hesitation. Now, two separate examples testify to the similarity of experience between pre-war and post-1916 recruits. Pre-war, Richards recorded how they spent one hour every Friday afternoon perfecting saluting, with NCOs stationed around the barrack square playing the role of officers. Recruits marched around and around, and every time they approached an NCO, the order up was issued. 
at which each recruit would bring his hand up in the perfect salute before lowering it at the command down. Mistakes or slovenliness resulted in an extra hour's drill, marching around the square, saluting various trees after everyone else had left. Some to go to the canteen for a drink, which no doubt motivated men to succeed at this training. Now, Frederick Augustus Voigt's account of training in 1917 echoes this almost perfectly. We marched to and fro, saluting imaginary officers with our left hands. It may have been 20 times, it may have been 50. If they wanted to finish the day's drilling, each man had to leave the ranks in turn and salute the sergeant in passing. Some of us did so clumsily and incorrectly and were sent back in order to repeat the performance. Now, this was close order drill at its most effective. And whilst it wasn't necessarily liked by the recruits, they quickly learned to carry out the various movements with exacting precision in cohesion with one another and training ingrained in innate respect for discipline and obedience to the words of command upon them. Now, the experience of men going, undergoing training in the pre-war territorial force and in Kitchener's army was completely different. With the territorials, they were only part-time soldiers who did trained for one night per week and occasionally a two-week annual camp, though not all went on that. This made it impossible for training to enforce discipline on them through um, consistently because any discipline built in their weekly drill night was quickly watered down by the remaining six and a half days the men spent living as civilians. Another problem was that many of the instructors knew the men they were training from civilian life and were often friends with them, and were frequently criticised for shying away from ordering rather than asking their men to perform a task. Now, training could not put in place a foundation of discipline, nor reinforce it like with the full-time regulars. The problems for Kitchener's army were different, but just as prominent. Now, at first, it was unfeasible to expect recruits to keep their accommodation or uniforms clean because they didn't have any accommodation or uniforms. Uh, the army simply couldn't provide these in 1914. And lots of recruits were living in tented uh, villages where rains turned the ground into a muddy bog. Nor did they possess uniforms with many drilling in the civilian clothes, which uh, made them appear more uh, ludicrous than martial. Most critical, though, was the aforementioned shortage of NCOs. There were simply too few experienced NCOs, even in the first K-1 units who had the highest um, put ratio of these men, and too many recruits that any semblance of discipline be maintained. When Captain A.P.B. Irwin first met the 8th East Surreys, he explained that the lack of NCOs meant all he could do was to get the men to sit down and stay down. Otherwise, we couldn't possibly control them. George Butterworth similarly remarked how on his second day in the army, the hopeless lack of discipline could be explained by the fact there were only four or five NCOs to manage about 1,500 recruits. The traditional relationship between NCO and recruit also had to evolve as strict discipline was now unenforceable. NCOs had to act with good temper and though hopelessly overworked, had to be patient with their recruits. The reliance on NCOs promoted from the ranks also exacerbated this problem, as they knew no more about army discipline than the men they commanded, so could hardly enforce it themselves. Hankey remarked how the vast majority of both the NCOs and men were quite new to discipline, and I quote, full of pernicious civilian ideas about liberty and the rights of man, end quote. NCO's authority was also undermined by them often being friends, just as with the territorials. With Joe Racine noting in the fifth sea force, one fault seemed to point, seemed to point to the fact that the non-commissioned officers had been in private life friends of the men, and in consequence, the maintenance of discipline was rather difficult. Whilst these NCOs or instructors gradually learnt their role, Hankey emphasized the distinction between pre-war and Kitchener's army recruits writing how in a regular battalion, the tradition of discipline, when once established and accepted, is handed down automatically. Discipline can be enforced because there is always a majority which has been inured to it, and an executive of NCOs who have it bred in the bone. Similarly, in an article published in the New Statesman, Frederick Keeling stated, and this is in 1915, the discipline of Kitchener's army is different from that of the old regulars. As one of the natural bases of discipline, the subordination of rank to rank more or less according to seniority of service is necessarily absent in battalions composed almost entirely of men who enlisted en masse as raw recruits. The great majority of the men who were non-commissioned officers knew no more than the other recruits when they joined. 
Their authority, apart from legal powers, of which in the hands of a fool will not suffice in any army in the world to secure the instinctive obedience, which is discipline, therefore depends almost solely upon their inherent capacity and the goodwill of their subordinates. Now, this goodwill was not enough, and from the outset, recruits in Kitchener's army resisted the army's attempts to regulate their appearance and conduct. One soldier recorded how there were some attempts to discipline us, but it was of no avail. And when he was told by a man, and it's unclear if this was an NCO, to clean the toilets and make up beds in their accommodation, he ignored the order and continued gambling. When this man returned with an officer to repeat the order, Walton um, told the officer, I don't do it for him who is bigger than you, and continued gambling, which really isn't discipline in any sense of the word. Now, training encountered particular problems here with close order drill as many instructors just did not know what they were doing. One newly commissioned lieutenant had to be shown how to form fours, which is pretty much the most basic drill maneuver soldiers had to perform. One um, soldier recruit, sorry, lambasted his NCO for not understanding some of the drills and getting quarrelsome, threatening to fight any recruit who would take him on. The result was often chaos, with one recruit describing how officers who were not too conversant with the drill book had us herded up like a flock of sheep in the corner of the parade ground, which amused the recruits who went out of their way to add to the confusion. Consequently, many recruits struggled with even the basics of marching in step, with Beath recording how his platoon could manage seven complete and giddy paces before disintegrating into an irregular echelon after three weeks of training. Most critically, though, this obviously posed significant problems for developing discipline. Hankey's officer leading drill often made mistakes, after which he would explain what he had done wrong and then try again. Now, Hankey felt this was beneficial as they began to take much of an interest in pride in their progress, um, as he did in, uh, as the officer did. But the problem was the men were not learning to obey the rank, but the man himself. Hankey was aware of this, admitting that the officer's authority was purely personal and on the whole bad for discipline as the men's obedience was not instinctive, but built on personal choice. Combined with many instructors also being friends with or familiar to the men they were training, rather than the strict environment faced by pre-war and post-1916 recruits, men joining Kitchener's army performed close order drill in a far more serene setting. One recruit actually found his early training was a great lark compared to the wearing discipline and incessant activity of working at a newspaper. Now, the consequences of this for discipline were dire. One private, on being asked why he failed to salute a sergeant, simply replied, I didn't know him. Now, this wasn't instinctive obedience. This wasn't discipline. Another problem was that many recruits in Kitchener's army had volunteered with exceptionally high combat motivation. Um, if you follow the patterns of recruitment, it peaks at the end of August after the Battle of Mons, um, because men know they're needed to defend Britain and Belgium from German aggression. So a lot of recruits had enlisted to fight Germans, not parade outside Buckingham Palace, and often struggled to see the need why to learn parade ground drill at all. Um, C. Jones wrote a letter on 20th September 1914, weeks after enlisting, which stressed how, and I quote, everyone wishes to go abroad at the earliest possible moment. They enlisted to fight for the country and squad drills are wearisome. C. Jones wrote a letter on 20th of September 1914, weeks after enlisting, which stressed how everyone wishes to go abroad at the earliest possible moment. They enlisted to fight for the country and squad drills are wearisome. One month later, close order drill had firmly entrenched itself in his mind as tiring and uninteresting in his pen. Now, both instructors and recruits often treated close order drill with less reverence than the army would have liked in 1914 and 15. In February of 1915, Racine's captain simply let the men lie down in the shade of the trees and keep out of sight, but be ready to jump up and resume drill at a given signal so the adjutant put in, so the adjutant put in an appearance. Now, the result was training inculcated discipline and obedience far more slowly in recruits than with pre-war and post-1916. After a month's training, Keeling complained in a letter home that there might well be a bit more Prussianism, which was a byword for discipline, in the discipline of Kitchener's army. You still see fellows slouch up to officers to answer questions or argue with superiors. 
In an article for the New Statesman, he also highlighted the perpetual chatter in platoons, which are supposed to be standing or at attention, and a pestilent minority of slackers only intermittently troubled to keep in step on the march. Now, this lack of discipline resulted in many often humorous incidents during basic training. In one Yorkshire battalion, recruits had to be taught not to argue with their instructors, after which they instead waited till after a parade had finished to confront their officer and have a word with him in quite an aggressive tone. Recruits in the 18th Division took a little grasping that one does not hail a general by his nickname, with one incident during the final stages of basic training entering the divisional folklore, when the divisional commander Maxi was with his staff and brigade and battalion commanders during the field exercise, a hot and dirty private towing a very bored-looking mule after him pushed through the group, selected Sir Ivor himself out with the crowd and demanded, where's the Bedford transport? Recruits' lack of respect for army authority and discipline also saw high rates of men going absent without leave or AWOL. Now, this isn't to say pre-war recruits didn't go AWOL. Uh, Frank Richards was soon taught to climb over the barracks wall to spend the night in town with female companions by a more experienced soldier. But in Kitchener's army, this problem presented on a far larger scale. The 6th West Yorks suffered from a great many absentees, men absenting themselves for four or five days at a time, mostly first offenders. On September the 15th, 1940, there were 56 men absent at once. The battalion eventually had to enroll the Bradford police to help round up these absentees and return them to a battalion. And by November, they reduced the problem to only one absentee at a time um, by holding courts martials for any men absent over 12 hours which implies a lot of men were still going absent for 11 hours or slightly less. The sheer quantity of drill these recruits performed and the imp gradual improvement in instructors as they learned what they were doing on the job did see a gradual increase in men's innate respect for discipline and instinctive obedience. Neither quality, however, ever reached the army's desired standards, and many men continued either ignoring disciplinary standards or questioning orders when they arrived at the front. Major General Henry Horn, when he was commanding 2nd Division in March 1915, complained that newly arrived territorials and reinforcement drafts had received substandard training in close order drill, and a little attention appears to be devoted in England to cultivate a smart and soldier-like bearing and to enforce strict discipline and cleanliness. This was not just the grumbling of an old regular distrustful of temporary soldiers either, as many of the men themselves noted noticed the problem. Aubrey Smith recalled how when moving to the front as part of a draft in January 1915, he was struck by the men's delightful freedom from discipline, as some sang on parade and others arrived late. When the 47th Territorial Division arrived in France, it quickly set up a plan for training whilst in reserve, the first essentials of which were achieving a high state of discipline, um, which obviously indicates they didn't have a high state of discipline when they began it. Um, now, once basic training was complete and men went on active service, training did become more uniform in quality between um, pre-war recruits, Kitchener's Army, and post-1916. Now, close order drill was a consistent and significant part of life at the front, which disappointed many men who'd hoped they'd left it behind once they finished basic training. Andrews recalls how in early 1915, one of the men's most pathetic illusions was thinking they had done forever with drills, punctuous saluting and shaving before breakfast, but this soon proved false after they were read the riot act by their major for slovenly appearance on parade. Nor were standards allowed to slip. The soldiers spent many hours cleaning and polishing before going on guard duty, parade or being inspected by an officer. A wartime joke from the salient trench journal was that regular soldiers consisted of pipe clay and metal polish with a man inside to give it more effect. And it was only after the war broke out that the army realized the man was of more importance than the pipe clay. Now the army did maintain similar standards throughout the war. Um, Lambert bitterly recalled late in the war after taking part in fierce fighting at the third battle of Ypres, every trace of mud must disappear. disappear. Leather must gleam, buckles must shine in the sun, hair must be cut. Not a minute particle of dust must be visible on or in the rifle, and some battalion commanders would have ordered their men's memories to be thoroughly scoured if it had been possible. Regardless of how filthy soldiers were on leaving the trenches, 
any mistakes or missed spots could see them punished. And this, avoiding this could require days of effort. J.W. Grayson found reserve was no holiday as we spent our time attempting to clean our equipment and clothing. A formidable task may alone will take me weeks of toil. Now, the historian J.G. Fuller argues this antagonized many infantrymen, but it also provided a point of stability and reassurance in a chaotic world. More importantly for me, it helped maintain discipline by continually conditioning soldiers to respect the Army's standards. With Captain G.H. Greenwell, Greenwell sorry, writing home in 1917, he remained a firm believer in polish and smartness as an aid to discipline. Slowly but surely, this continual training improved standards for all men at the front, and particularly those in Kitchener's army, with soldiers increasingly learning not to question orders vociferously, though they never reached the same standards as pre-war formations. Importantly, the continual erosion of discipline and obedience by life at the front um, was a continual problem. Now, this was often due to time spent in the trenches, where men were in such close proximity with their officers for extended periods, it wasn't practical to enforce strict discipline. Or the constant influx of new drafts after heavy casualties, or when they were in the trenches, simply time they weren't spending training. Complaints were therefore about the lack of discipline were therefore made throughout the war. Um, one soldier admitted how after a few months at the front, men in his battalion still drew complaints that when an officer passed, they didn't spring for attention on the instant and salute with due deference. In 1917, Maxi complained about poor march discipline, where men failed to keep the correct alignments or pace whilst marching, issuing instructions throughout his corps that a battalion which is slack in march discipline is slack in battle and no good anywhere. So ultimately, differences in training help explain clear differences in attitudes towards discipline and obedience between different categories of men. The pre-war regular, when under the command of a superior, was disciplined and obedient. However, when left to his own devices, um, this discipline did disappear somewhat, and he had a wantonness for getting drunk. Bowman notes how in Irish regular battalions, between their arrival at the front in some point in 1914 and 30th of September 1915, 35% of all crime was due to drunkenness. In contrast, the men of Kitchener's army were relatively undisciplined and disobedient when under the authority of a superior. McCartney, looking at records of minor crimes in the Liverpool Rifles, notes how whilst many crimes increased in number later in the war, the number of soldiers reported for failing to comply with orders or insulting superiors peaked in 1916. Drunkenness was, however, far rarer. Now, post-1916 drafts possessed both the pre-war regulars' discipline and obedience and the aversion to drunkenness of Kitchener's army. Now, to me, this indicates two things. First, um, men's background was key to explaining lots of their attitudes towards drink, because this was the difference between Kitchener's army, um, the pre-war regulars, and the um, post-1960. Pre-war regulars tend to be underclass, loved a drink. Kitchener's army and post-1916 working and middle class don't love a drink as much. Second, training then explains the difference in obedience and instinctive of, um, reaction to orders. Pre-war regulars and post-1906 recruits had instinctive obedience to orders, and this came about through their training. Kitchener's army didn't, and this was because of a failure of their training. And I believe I'll... That's my summary. So... You're arguing that drill had a major impact on the army. How, yeah. what, out, what outcomes would you argue it has? Is it, does it contribute to morale, combat effectiveness, or what else? It's um, discipline, which is, I distinct, I, so when we're talking about discipline, morale, motivation, it's very hard to separate them because everyone uses their own terminology like the discipline. The way I view it, the British Army in 1914 calls it soldierly spirit, of which there are three components. Discipline, which is what we've already talked about. Motivation, which I use John Lynn's definition, which is basically it's what makes you, what motivates you to make a first decision. And then morale is what keeps you going once you've did it, done it. So if we use the example of taking up jogging, Motivation is what makes you take up jogging in the first place. 
morale is what gets you out of bed on the third week when you really don't want to do jogging anymore and it's like you need to stay in shape and discipline is what keeps your posture correct whilst you're out jogging and keeps you doing the warm-up the stretches etc to ensure you don't injure yourself and these all kind of overlap but close order drill and discipline is really about obedience um, uh, to orders and getting men to respect the army um, and this has lots of important connotations. I mean, we talk a lot about uniform and stuff like that, but this um, translates into how they act in battle. So for one example, digging in once you've captured an enemy position to protect yourselves against counterattack. This requires discipline. Lots of soldiers after they've captured an enemy position do not want to dig in. It's the last thing on their mind. They want to kind of relax. They've won the battle and not think about what's coming next discipline and that instinctive obedience for the standards they have to uphold forces them to follow through on the next steps and do the tasks they don't want to perform. Same for the maintenance of quarters, such as not going to the toilet in a trench, which would obviously cause major health and safety problems. And you do get examples of them having to put warnings not to defecate or urinate in certain locations because men like to do that um, rather than go to the latrines. Um, and yeah, it's that just respect um, and discipline also leads into personal respect and personal um, belief in oneself. It's what you could call the identity of a soldier. It's an innate self-respect that if you do things properly, um, you'll feel better about yourself. Um, probably an example from the modern day, like they think about depression and like making your bed in the morning is a simple way to motivate yourself um, in the morning and to have a better outlook on the life like you'll see on these um ted talks where it's army officers saying that if you want to get the most out of your day get up early and make your bed in the correct manner and polish your boots and everything like that because it builds an instinctive respect not just for the army's view but your your own personal self and the way you conduct yourself um putting on a suit and doing up the top button and scrubbing up makes you feel better about yourself and it's the same for discipline there's this in, innate respect that soldiers often talk about coming from um, appearing like they should. Uh, and it's, this comes through at the front, like it's the guards in particular are held to be a bastion, bastion or example of the perfect soldier, in part because of how effective they are at drill. Even in 1918, after the German Spring Offensive, you get stories of soldiers watching the guards drilling and going, blooming it, they're brilliant at that. They must be real proper soldiers and they must know how to do it properly. Um, and it's also a source of pride, um, which is secondary to discipline. Um, that soldiers take pride in how good they are at drill. C. Jones, after about four weeks of being a recruit, is asked to take part in a parade. And he writes home saying, I'm really fearful of embarrassing my squad mates if I don't execute these maneuvers correctly. Um, and this then ties into what motivates men and gives them the morale to keep going. It's the primary group theory, which to me at least, there's the primary group, which is soldiers fight because of, it's often called um, loyalty, but I think pride's a better, better word to explain. It. It's pride in themselves and their comrades. And um, there's the secondary group, which is pride in their formation, be it a battalion, where they don't necessarily know everyone by sight, but they understand they belong to the same body. And then there's also tertiary group um, pride, which is um, stuff like the regiment or the army. It's an identity that doesn't have a hard practical foundation, but it exists. So they have a pride in their regiment's history. They can't touch or feel the history. They don't, they're not part necessarily, it's not a physical manifestation, but it's there and they feel pride in it and they want to do well. And discipline, ties into this by giving them a source or foundation of pride as well. Um, so by giving men a high standard of discipline, it can often give them a high standard of pride in themselves, which then bleeds into a higher standard of motivation and a higher standard of morale. Harry, where can people read about this? Obviously, it's July 22. You're currently going through the hell of the, the final death throes of, of your, your struggle to get this PhD done. When's it going to be a monograph and when can I read it? The monograph is when I get a book deal, um, which will be it's not on the horizon yet. I'm hoping to turn um, 
are in the process of converting this into a journal article. So that will hopefully get um, published um, in a shorter time frame, outlining basic arguments. Or if uh, Helen McCartney or Ian Beckett or anyone who I've um, criticised or said I differ from listens to this and angrily tweets me saying you're wrong and here's why, I'll probably correct it to take their views on board because uh, what I found is training is just such a vast subject area. I have tried to cover pretty much every aspect of it. And I am looking forward to being corrected in the future because what I hope I've done is prove that it is a very important area that has been underappreciated in the existing historiography. And I hope lots of people go and look at um, individual aspects in greater detail than I've been that has been possible for me to do. So, for example, with discipline, this is one chapter out of well, one section. It's not even one whole chapter. It's one section in a chapter out of in a chapter when there's 13 other chapters looking at completely different aspects of training. Um, so when people look at these um, areas in isolation, I'm sure they'll find stuff or correlations or connections that I've been unable to identify. And hopefully, and I really look forward to being corrected. Harry, thank you very much for your time. No problem. It's been a pleasure speaking with you again. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.